You know, when I first started this podcast and wanted to do this podcast, I mean, I have radio, I television, I can talk to anybody several different ways. This podcast was important to me because I wanted to talk to guests with unique perspectives on what we're going through and people that have been shunned in academia, for example, people who I wouldn't otherwise find myself talking to or people who wouldn't have an outlet to share their amazing stories because of their political views and to do it in a forum to where we could just sit and just have a conversation because that doesn't happen anymore. Agreeing with me on political issues or anything else has never been a prerequisite. In fact, I want to hear different points of view. I want to be intellectually nimble and curious. I encourage you to do something dangerous once a week, something that scares you once a week. Have a conversation that you're not sure about. Listening is a lost art now, and it is absent in our culture, and it's sapping our unity. Listening is one of those things that my guest today has been cultivating on his own journey. This is an incredible story. College dropout became brash, prodigious talent in the world of media and publicity. Huge success. He wrote a book in his early 20s on how to manipulate the media. He was really a fake news pioneer and he hated it. In the aftermath of that book uh, and his pulling back the curtain on the dark underbelly of American media, he did what most brash prodigies fail to do without tragedy, addiction, or failure forcing it on them, and that is self-reflection. He looked in the mirror and didn't like what he saw. There has to be more to life than this. But how is he going to turn that ship? It was already churning through deep, deep waters of lies. Answering that question has spurred him to remake his career in a way that invited a lot of skeptical criticism because of the way he first burst on the scene with his how-to book on media manipulation. Is he still playing the media manipulation game? Is he playing me like a fiddle? Well, I don't think so. Is uh, Since that first book, Trust Me, I'm Lying, he has written six other New York Times bestsellers, including his latest book titled Stillness is the Key. It sounds like, oh, and you're going to have to meditate. It is not like that at all. It's been translated into 30 languages. 30. The Prince of Media Lies has morphed into a philosopher and an internationally known speaker in 30 different languages. There's some things I'm sure we don't agree on, but there's a lot we do. There's one thing that he and I and all of us really have in common. Most of our lives are too chaotic. There are practical ways to cut through the chaos and live richer, deeper, more meaningful lives. Ryan Holiday, countercultural, really. All countercultural ideas about shh, stillness. hope you don't take this the wrong way. Uh-oh. But, yeah, I know. I know. It's never good when it starts that way. But in some ways, you remind me of me. That you went and you did something and you thought you were doing great and you're pioneering and you're doing it for maybe all the right reasons. And then you stop and you look back and you're like, that caused some problems that I didn't see. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yes. And And then you stop and you're like, I could be very successful if I just keep doing that, but it provides too many uh, real traps for my own personal happiness sure. that you just, I just can't get past. 
Yeah, it's like sort of what you, you have to look in the mirror at some point and go, what kind of person do I want to be in? And do it's not, am I being well paid for this? Am I doing it at a high level? And, you know, am I doing, am I sort of challenged by it? But like, is this making the world a better place? Yes or no. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, on the media side for me, it was like, I, I discovered something I could be very good at it. I, the sky was the limit, but it was, it was realizing like, Hey, if everyone was doing what I was doing, this would not be the world that I would want to live mm-hmm. in. And that I was doing things I thought for the right reasons, but people could very easily do them for the wrong reasons. And this is almost exactly the way I felt. Yeah. That I, I'm, I think I'm doing it for the right reasons. It's not being taken. And if everybody does this, it's, it's trouble. I remember I I read an interview with Michael Lewis and he was saying, he's like, he wrote that book, Liar's Poker, about Mm -hmm. everything that was wrong with Wall Street. And he's like, people come up to me and say, you're why I work on Wall Street. And he's like, that was not what, and so I get that a lot. I I, I would identify as sort of like center right or sort of radical middle uh, politically. But when like very extreme alt-right people tell me that like trust me, I'm lying is like their Bible. Or like the guy that gave Donald Trump the idea for the wall said that trust me, I'm lying is is like the Bible that he lives by. Mm. Like that's not that's not the difference I want to make in the mm. world. And and so yeah, I ended up writing that book. And the funny thing was, people when I wrote it, people accused me of writing the book just to make money. And it was like <laughs> writing a book is literally the worst possible way you can cash <laughs> yeah, in on yeah, something. I know, you know, I know, I know. So uh, for anybody who hasn't read the book. Just in a couple of paragraphs. It is like a sort of a whistleblower's account or a ripping back the curtain of how the sausage is made from, from our, our modern media system, uh, of which I was a sort of a bad actor in, mm-hmm. uh, but also sort of, I think, someone who was sort of shown, like in the way I sort of like... Bad, hang on, just a second. You weren't a bad actor in, I mean... Um, you were working for an apparel company. Yes, sure. It's not like you were like, and yes. then they'll all die. Yes. I, I, was, I wasn't, I wasn't spearheading Russia's uh, yeah, know, right, a, right, election right. interference. But at the same time, like I, I sort of liken it to a computer hacker who is like hacking into things that they know they're not supposed to be doing, but then telling like leaving signs afterwards and say, you should fix this. And that's where I came from, from the book. I, I totally get not everyone's going to interpret it that way. But like for me, it was it was the thrill and the challenge of like having fun in a corrupt, broken system. But but knowing ultimately, like this was not leading down a path that that I was proud of. OK, so you had somewhere in you something good that you you had uh, some sort of an archetype in you that said, that's not what I imagine a good person to be. Yes. Right? Yes. We're erasing almost all of those. There is no, we, we are destroying everything to the point to where we used to be able to point and say, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King, Jesus, Moses, whoever it is. Yeah. I really don't care. We don't have anybody. Everybody's bad. When I was about 19 years old, do you know who Dr. Drew is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was 19 years old. I went to this conference and Dr. Drew was there and I asked him what books I should be reading. And he told me to read the Stoics. And I read Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. And there's a line in that book. He says, like, uh, waste no more time. And I have this as a print on my wall now. He says, waste no more time talking about what a good man is. Be one. 
And I think that was a big part. It was like, well, I'm reading about this. I'm writing about this. I know this is true, but what am I, is, is, is what I do professionally in line with that? And it wasn't. And, and I think, and this is something you hear the Stokes talk about is exactly what you're saying about heroes. You have to have someone that you're comparing yourself to or against. Like Seneca says, he's like, without a ruler, you can't make crooked straight. And I think that's what these heroes should do for us. I think the problem is we now spend most of our time undermining heroes rather than lionizing the virtues that those heroes had. Partly because we um, we made our heroes into gods. Sure. And 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 we would not accept anything. I mean, let's just take America. I grew up in um, in in a family that. Yeah, we got we have problems. America has problems, but it's generally a good place. But boy, is that screwed up. Yeah. You know what I mean? Sure. That's the way we should look at heroes. But even today, you'll have people who are like, America is the best place ever and you don't like it. Yeah. And the opposite. It is the worst place on the planet. It's neither of those. It has had moments of each. I think that's a big part of it. I also think academically, like teachers used to think their job was to teach their students how to be good people. Now they believe their job is to teach them facts. So like I, I in, like, if you look at old, old school books, they had the story of George Washington and the cherry tree in, in mm-hmm. that book as if it was true. Mm-hmm. Obviously it's not true. Mm-hmm. And obviously I don't think they thought it was true. I think they were teaching it as a moral lesson. I remember in school, not learning that story, but learning specifically that it was not true. Like they went out of their way to go, hey, by the way, George Washington did not chop, like did not do this thing with the cherry tree. That's a lie. But what they, which is fine, as long as you go, but here is a real life story of someone Mm -hmm. who didn't tell a lie when it counted, right? Here is his book on virtues that he wrote when he was like 10. Yes. I mean, that's an incredible thing. It kills me, especially on George Washington. That however long ago, we came up with a lie to teach how honest he was. It's insane. It, it is. And, and then, you know, people go, oh, but George Washington owned slaves. And that's one way to look at it. The other way is to look at it. If all the founders who almost all universally believe that slavery was bad, he's the only one that freed his slaves. Mm-hmm. And like, and he how, was the only one that could, though, at least in Virginia. Well, the, the, Jefferson couldn't. Well, we, we don't even, we, we can't even... Yeah, no. We can't even get into the debate about like, hey, look, actually, Virginia passed laws that meant that made it so you had to provide for your slaves after you monumented them. So it was actually extraordinarily difficult to do it. Like, have you read the Chernow biography of Grant? No. The new one? It's really good. And what I loved about it was that he spends a whole bunch of time on Reconstruction. And I had always believed... And what I and, and this is someone who'd studied the Civil War that it was like we won the Civil War the the, you know, the the North wins the Civil War the motivations are 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 somewhat you know conflicted and then we just dropped the ball on Reconstruction mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. we just didn't actually care about black mm-hmm. people and we you know we threw Not into the true. wolves what you read in that book is just how hard Grant and Sherman and all these Union veterans fought to solidify the gains of that victory and how hot at the Freedmen's Bureau and all the things the the prosecutions of the Klan and all like so we tell the story like the story we tell kids is that like 
we failed on civil rights. It's a black mark, a shame on this nation, and we're horrible hypocrites. When we should be saying, look, it was a narrow run thing. We almost got this right in the 1860s. Uh-huh. And, and, and because we didn't get all the way there, it took us 100 years to get it right again. And that's why we have to keep fighting and we have to believe that we're capable. Do you know what I mean? Like, those are fundamentally different I, narratives. I... Um, I have to show you my yeah. first copy. I, I, we have a uh, a copy of the original draft of the Declaration of Independence, handwritten yeah. by Thomas Jefferson. Have you ever seen one? No. Okay. I mean, I, yes, in D.C. Yeah. I've seen one, but okay. yes. So um, we have the 1820 engraving of it. When Jefferson is writing about slavery it, that's been taken yeah. out of the declaration of independence when he, his handwriting changes you can see how passionate he is he's capitalizing words yeah. it's crazy yeah and we don't we don't learn any of this stuff um we just tear it all down say that it's all worthless and i i've gotten to the point where i look at we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by a creator with certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And government is established by men to protect those rights. Beautiful. Can you think of a better dot on the horizon that you say, that's where we want to go? I can't. And we're just we're throwing the baby with the bathwater. There's lots of stuff that we could change. But that wasn't, hey, we've done it. That's saying this is our direction for the first time in human history. We believe we should do this. And let's say that wasn't what they were doing. Lincoln reframes it that way in the 1860s. Because he re- and, and Martin Luther King, a hundred years later, reframes it that way. And so and, did Frederick Douglass. And, Frederick and, Douglass was totally. against it at first until Lincoln said, have you read it? And, and, and so the idea of like deciding what are, are you going to like Victor Frankl had this line where he said, you know, if you take things as they are, you make man worse. If you think about it as what we can be, you make men better. And I think w- we've decided to tell a very depressing, a very dark a very resigned narrative about America, about the human race, instead of one like instead of one where we are calling to our capacities to be better when we're when we're pushing the mark of where we can go. Instead, we've decided that we're all terrible, totally irredeemable. Everyone's a a, a hypocrite. And what I think this has left us in is this sort of nihilism that is the modern world, where nothing matters, nothing can be accomplished, nothing is improved, and we all suck. It's Nietzsche when he said it wasn't a a celebratory phrase when he said God is dead. He was challenging. So man's going to need a God. What are you going to replace it with? And if you don't replace it, you're doomed. Yeah, he doesn't say he says God is dead and we have killed him. Like Mm -hmm. that's a problem. Mm -hmm. And what do you replace it with? And, And I think, you know, as someone who writes about the Stoics, like every every couple of months, the New York Times or Washington Post, or one of these newspapers will do a trend piece about how the popularity of Stoicism is, you know, about, you know, it's like, why are why are people in Silicon Valley obsessed with suffering? Why are we using this philosophy of the ancient world where they used to, you know, tolerate? 
who were the founding fathers thinking about when they were they, they were thinking of Cato, right? Like George Washington was inspired by these ancient figures who themselves fell short of what they believed in. And so you have to be looking at history, not with an eye of judgment, but by finding something to call you to a higher principle. And, and we've we've lost that and we've replaced it with what? I had a friend tell me one time, um, he was a great man, great man, and uh, taught me so much. And he came into my office one time and he said, do you have any pictures of any of your heroes? And I said, no. And he said, you have to, you have to. He said, you have to put a picture of some men you want to be like, and you put them right there on the edge of the desk. So when you're making a decision and you're just talking, you glance down there and think to yourself, is that what that guy, am I getting closer or farther away? When you would walk into Monticello, Jefferson had statues of his heroes, George contemporary heroes like Washington, but also ancient heroes. And I, I have a bust on my desk of Marcus Aurelius from the 1840s. It's, and and I, I think I use it for a couple things. One, I think the guy that had this statue made is dead and someone will own this statue after me. Like this is just a, a mm-hmm. like what they say about like Care-tater, a caretaker. Yeah, that, that you just own a Rolex till you pass it on to the next generation uh, or whatever. Not it is. a Rolex. What is it? It's a Patek Philippe. Yes. But but that idea that we're all just yeah. there's stewards, stewards. But but like. We have this expression that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And then there's this guy who is adopted to be emperor. So he suddenly thrust upon him that he's going to be the emperor of Rome. And what does he do with absolute power? We know what everyone else has ever done with absolute power. You kill your rivals, right? You, you, mm-hmm. Marcus Aurelius, the first thing he does as emperor is name a co-emperor. The first thing he does with absolute power is give half of it away to his stepbrother. And you're just like... That is that will that has never happened before in history, and that will probably never happen again in history. What can you learn from these people, and how can you keep their memory fresh? So, and that helps us if you know history. I mean, um, Wilson was the first who tried to run for a third term. It wasn't against the Constitution. Yeah, it's just that George Washington gave it up when he didn't have to. You know, King George said, if he gives that up, he'll be the greatest man to ever live. Yeah, he did. And so the conversation was, you really think you're better than George Washington? Yeah, we don't have that anymore. So these people, because that self-regulator is gone, these people run until they did. Barack Obama, Donald Trump, they'd run till the day they died. Well, and what's so incredible is why did Washington do that? Because his hero was Cincinnatus, who is made dictator. He saves Rome, and then he says, I want to return to my farm. And, and like, uh, I think it's George Wills, uh, uh, he, he's, he's writing that, uh, that Washington wanted power for the sole purpose of giving it away. Like, that his dream was, for him it wasn't, how can I become powerful? It's, how can I become powerful and then use that to teach the lesson 
that the institutions matter more than the individual. And, and he resigns his commission. That's the first time he gives power away. Then, then, uh, then, then he, he walks away after he becomes, it's incredible. But he does that not because he's superhuman, but because he had the myths and heroes that inspired him to be better than what he naturally was. And he had humility. There's nothing... There is no, look at Abraham Lincoln. Is there a more humble guy than that? He's beaten almost to death. You look at the picture of five year okay. difference. Yeah, you think Obama like, changed in office? Oh you look at Lincoln. Gosh. It's incredible. It's incredible. So he's just beaten into humility. And there is nothing, nothing in our society that is saying, hey, good for you. You're humble. Yeah, right. Nothing. Well, no, no, look, I, I, I wrote a book called Ego is the Enemy. Like, I, I think about this a lot. Like, the greatest people are, are the most humble, but it's the, they're also advertised for themselves the worst. So we hear about them. Do you know what I mean? We hear, like, George Marshall, I think, is the greatest man of the 20th century. Why do we know less about George Marshall? It's because in 1950, George Marshall was offered a million dollars to write his memoirs, and he turned it down. Wow. And... Uh, and, and he said, uh, and, and why is George Marshall not become president and Eisenhower does? FDR says to Marshall, I know you want a battlefield command. I know your reputation as a general depends on it. Do you want to command the troops at Normandy? And he says, I want you to pick who you think will help you do your job best. And it goes to his subordinate, Eisenhower. Marshall has to write out, this is one, I think the greatest, one of the greatest, mm. most remarkable moments in American history. So I, FDR offers the job to Marshall, he turns it down. He write. he says, okay, I'm giving it to Eisenhower. Please write out, please, here's the orders. He has to write out the orders to his protege, giving him the job that gives Eisenhower the, the presidency, the most important invasion in history. And after he finishes the orders, he writes, and you can see this, he writes, Dear Ike, I thought you might want this memento for your, for your, for your records. Congratulations. And so, all he, and, and so all he's thinking about is the country and the mission and not about other people. And, and then, so you go, oh, but doesn't this help him? Doesn't this hurt his career? Mm -hmm. when, when Marshall goes, when you have a reputation like that, when Marshall goes in front of Congress and says, hey, I need hundreds of millions of dollars for this thing called the Manhattan Project, and I can't tell you what it's for, and you'll mm -hmm. have no visibility into it, they say, sure. Right? Like, when you have that reputation, you can actually accomplish incredible mm -hmm. things. But It's interesting to me, because I didn't know that story about Marshall. It's interesting to me that Ike was similar in many ways. I mean, the, yeah. the, 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 one of the more powerful letters in history I've ever read is, this is my fault. I did it wrong. Blame no one else yes. that he wrote before the battle of Normandy is yeah. saying in case it goes horribly, just release this where he takes 100% of the blame. And, and he would keep the, He kept this poem in his wallet that said, like, take your hand, put it in a bucket of water. Now remove your hand from the bucket of water. That's how important you are. So something like, like he would meditate actively on how insignificant he was. Meanwhile, he's, heading the largest army ever in history and and you need that you need that balance otherwise you become like macarthur and eventually you spin off the planet right mm -hmm. and and you make catastrophic mistakes and and again this is what the study of history reminds you of 
hopefully none of us are ever leading an army that large, <laughs> but we are leading companies or you're a parent. Like, like these are timeless forces that have led humans astray forever. And, and this is what the smart philosophers and leaders have always been struggling with. And, you know, I think Mattis is a deep admirer of, of, uh, of Marshall. And I think he struggled with, do I write my memoirs or not? he decides to write them. I think the remarkable thing about Mattis's memoirs is not only does he not mention Trump one time, but there's a scene in the memoirs where he talks about, I think it's in the second Cold War, he has to fire a commander who was, who was good, but not aggressive enough. And this had been like an international incident because he fired, like as we're winning the war, he, I forget who it was, but he, he, he basically cashiers this like uh, commander. All these years later, he's writing about it in his memoir he refuses to name the guy because he doesn't want to add to the guy's embarrassment. Like mm. he already did it, but he, he's, he has the dignity and self-control and the principle to say like, here's the kind of person that I'm going to be. And I just love that kind of a code. So it, it, it is the code that built us, you know, it is, I, I own a ranch way up in the mountains in the West. And it's a farming community and, and contracts for anything. Yeah. Hey, can I run my cattle on your land and I'll pay you this at the end of the year? Yeah. Sure. Done. Right. That code is who we used to be. You didn't break your word. You were a man of integrity. Not all of it, but at least that was, that was the thing that, again, we pointed to and said, I want, you want to be that man. Yeah. Okay. Um, is this going to come back into fashion? Uh, I mean, because to me, our suicide rate is going up because we don't have that. There's nothing to strive to be that will actually mean something. There's nothing better than somebody saying, you're a good man. Thank you for that. Or you just doing something and nobody knows, but you feel good. Yeah. That's what feeds us and keeps us up. No. And, and that's the glue that keeps the society together. I, I think the constitution and the bill of rights were designed to give us all these freedoms. The idea was not that you were free to do whatever you want. It's that the government wasn't going to tell you to do these things. Right. That's, but that there had to be some sort of personal or religious or spiritual code correct. that governed your behavior. We've gotten rid of all that. We've gotten rid of our heroes. Yes. We've gotten rid of our churches. We've gotten rid of our, what else uh, held us into place. Just our, our common bands as mm -hmm. a community. It's all gone. Well, I think... Like, I, I'm not a, a, a religious person. I think I used to be an atheist. I identify now as agnostic and that I don't know. But, like, if, if, if you start talking to someone about the cardinal virtues, uh, you know, sort of uh, courage, justice, mm -hmm. wisdom, and temperance, they hear cardinal and they think, oh, that's like a religious cardinal. They think that's a mm -hmm. And cardinal, uh, C.S. Lewis talks about this. Cardos is hinge. These are the pivotal virtues of, of, of society, of West, the Western world. But they're not Christian. They're, these are philosophical. These are these go back to Socrates and Aristotle and Marcus Aurelius. And so, one of the things that gets me excited, and obviously I'm a little bit biased in that I write about it, but like that people are turning back to these ideas because they they realize we knocked everything down, and that you have to 
there has to be something or else why not just kill yourself as you said because like if this is meaningless what, what do we what do we life is too hard to keep doing it i i've um i've always believed that if 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 the ten commandments or the new testament were just uh travels with jesus <laughs> And uh, uh, top ten tips from Mo. Yeah, they would be the they would be the gold standard of of everything. But yeah. because we've attached, we've we've taken all of those principles. Doesn't I believe they are true? Doesn't matter if it actually happened. What matters is this is five thousand years of people going. You know. This really repeats itself. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're, you're just learning how it repeats itself. Well, I think what's remarkable, I, I, I talk about this every Christmas to people, Jesus and Seneca were born in the same year, and they walked the same Roman Empire at the same time, saying a lot of the same things. Jesus is obviously saying, I am son of man, uh, I, I, I am the son of God, and, and, and that, that there is a religious justification for what he's talking about. But it's not as if he was the only person saying this. Like St. Paul is debating and talking with the Stoics and the Cynics. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and it, like philosophy was the civic. This was where we were discussing. Like, in, in, some, in some senses, it's almost like religion. Christianity was too successful. It ate everything. Mm -hmm. And so that and, and rightfully so, they sort of absorbed a lot of the tenets of these ancient schools. And, and so now, because people are like, I'm not religious, they think that, that humanity, that's the only moral framework that humanity has existed in, and that's nonsense. And, and what I find so, so inspiring is that when you turn to Eastern philosophy, um, and, and all the religions, at the core, they are saying very similar things about almost, what kind of person to be. Almost all of them are saying exactly the same thing. Yeah. It's... It's it's why I started questioning um, God and hell and everything else. Because I'm like, if I'm over in China and I'm, you know, Gandhi always yeah. bothered me. Gandhi, good yeah. guy. Yeah. You know, Jesus didn't wear pants. He didn't wear pants. I mean, they have a lot of common, yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. and good. But, but Gandhi knew Jesus. He knew. He said, I like this Jesus guy. I just don't like his followers. Yeah. Okay. Is he in hell? That didn't make any sense to me. Yeah. You know, it's it, God is speaking a language. You know, if there be a God, I happen to believe there is. But this is there is something that is a a pulsar that is saying truth, truth, truth. And it's global. It's universal. It, it is. There are certain things that that make us better people make us a safer people a safer civilization a happier people yeah i i think about it it's ironic you would think about it in terms of evolution but like like apes and chimps both have uh sorry a, a pandas and chimps both have thumbs bats and birds they both fly they they Evolutionarily, they have a common ancestor, but it's not like they're both descended from the same thing, right? These are independently, these animals evolved very similar strategies for surviving. 
I think, in a way, it goes to the central truth of what Christianity and Islam and Confucianism and Buddhism is talking about, that these schools independently said, oh, like, you got to control your temper. Oh, suffering is an inevitable part of life. You know, oh, courage is important, right? Uh, the golden rule, that they would independently come on the golden rule is, to me, like, the proof that it doesn't have to, either it's proof that it's supernatural or that it's proof that it doesn't matter if it's supernatural. It's that it, it clearly works because we've discovered it multiple times. To, it, I mean, to me personally, it matters to me personally. For you, for me, looking at you, I don't care. Right, right. I mean, I don't care. Are you, are you getting to be a better person than you were yesterday? Are you discovering the the tenets of just universal truth? Because it's just, it's like, you know, the family is just being torn apart. Just torn apart family, traditional family. Look, it's a building block. That doesn't mean I hate, I mean, my mom was a single mom. Okay, I don't hate families that broke apart or whatever. That doesn't make any sense. I don't hate gay people. I don't. But can't we all just say, if you can get a family where mom and dad aren't drunk alcoholics, you know, probably better. It's probably better. Yeah. You know, there's some things that you know, um, but where you have a family unit, that is the structure of all life, and it's best to do that. That doesn't mean. These are all evil. Right. It just means this is something we can say. This is what we should strive for, knowing humans fail all the time. And it's going to it's not always going to look like that. But this is something good. Isn't it? I would be curious for your thoughts. Like, I think it's like this word like decency is coming up a lot or norms come up a lot. And we seem to think those are things that you enforce on other people rather than follow yourself. So, like, like, I, I think Donald Trump has run roughshod over a whole bunch of important norms in American history mm -hmm. and in our political system. I think it's ironic that the media, which is violating all the, the hundreds of years of norms of its own profession, is the one that's upset about that. Right. Right? It's like you can you can only deal with the stuff that's going on in your house. Like, right. So it's like decent. It's like I think the bedrock of a family is important. So instead of being really upset about that, other people are doing things over here. Work on I'm yours. Try to be a good dad. Yes. Yeah, right. Yes. And don't condemn everybody else for living a different lifestyle than yours just we just have to be able to say uh you know what donald trump does is nuts yeah a lot of the times right and as a conservative i don't like it right. a lot of the times sometimes he does stuff that turns out good sure um and i'll take that and i'll leave that and not embrace it and not become everything i despise yeah, but and, and and I think the the politics becoming kind of a team sport has there's no nuance, and and that has eliminated the idea of like oh these are the things I believe like like uh, I, I that's what I think about Trump where it's like I don't care whether I agree with his policies or not like would you let your daughter work for him would you want him to be in charge of your retirement money like the, the like so I don't I don't care whether I agree with the policies or not. I, I agree with the the previous conservative position that character and temperament and you know like personal behavior matters more than politics. So now, how do you get there? 
when there is no one of character. I mean, we had, I think he, I don't agree with his policies. I don't like him all that much. He doesn't like me either. And I'm fine with that. Mitt Romney. I think he was a fundamentally good, decent man. Yes. He was made into the devil. Right. And Americans on both sides were like, yeah, and he's a Mormon, so I'm not sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. He was a good, decent man that you might disagree with, but he was a good man. He's somebody I would let my daughter go to their house. Right. You know, <laughs> sure. uh, he would watch my money. Yeah. All of it. I mean, I, I think McCain, I, I think liberals are going to have to look themselves in the mirror about this. It's like, look at the quality of person, people that we have turned into monsters over the last 10, 20 years. And then it, I liken it to the sort of the over prescription of antibiotics. It creates superbugs. Mm-hmm. You know, when you prescribed the shame treatment to John McCain, a guy who refused to go home from a POW camp because he wouldn't get uh, preferential treatment you want to make him into some sort of corrupt selfish monster right like of course you end up with donald trump correct uh because what sane person would and then let's look at it the other way obama has been one was one of the most dignified self-controlled sort of modeling good behavior presidents that we've ever had i mean like as far as like not bad like almost every one of the presidents we've ever had has been at the core probably a bad person unfortunately like a lot of them were bad people george bush was a good man yeah i'm just saying like on 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 the oz a lot of them were not good people yeah yeah uh you know he wasn't cheating on his wife he wasn't lying you know even even the way he's like you know like you obviously you compare obama post-presidency to truman post-presidency you know one 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 is much more dignified and and but at the same time like you know he didn't make his money doing illicit things Mm -hmm. you know like he 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 has for the most part practiced what we say what what everyone is preaching and somehow he got turned into a, a monster, you know, and, and then we wonder why we get actual monsters. Like we're the boy who cried wolf and then a wolf came and uh, suddenly you people don't trust you when you say this is not normal. And what comes after? I don't know how it can get like it's either going to get a lot worse. They used to say that. I used to say that. <laughs> Can't imagine how it got worse. Yeah. It's going to get worse. It, it does. Yeah, <laughs> I started it, saying it, that in it, 2004. <laughs> it can either get like history book bad or this is a, a rock bottom moment where it can get better. I mean, I think it's, it's one Do of you the... you think America is even sensing a rock bottom coming? I mean, if, if the things that are happening on a daily basis are not rock bottom, I don't want to know what rock bottom looks like. I my, mean... My mother committed suicide. She was an alcoholic. She committed suicide when I was a teenager. I know rock bottom. And for me, it's not there. And uh, thinking as an alcoholic myself and somebody who has been around suicide, I'm scared to death of America's rock bottom. Yeah. Because I, I don't, at some point, you're like, okay, there's an exit we just went by. There is an exit we went by. Hey, here's one. And we keep passing them and the bridge is out. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I take from history is like, like I earlier this year, I reread like Ford's post press post presidential memoirs. And you're just like, Oh, history is just the same thing happening over and over again. Do you know what I mean? And that, that, that it's always seemed like it was coming apart at the seams. Except there was the underlying belief that tomorrow would be better 
the underlying belief that there are good people and heroes and a uniting force of e pluribus unum. We're here for the idea that all men are created equal. Even though we don't ever get there, we still have this fundamental belief. You know, um, Martin Luther King challenged us to live up to that. Brigham Young, when he when he first crossed the mountains, being with torches across the mountains and kill everybody, he gets there and says, it's the people. It's not the documents. The ideas are right. We had that. I don't know if we have that anymore. I mean, yeah, the, the, the silver lining might be that is this also kind of a transition or is an, is a younger generation going to going to there's an F. Scott Fitzgerald story I love where he's this sort of spoiled young woman and she she has this doctor he comes and he gives her this, he says like uh, it's your turn to tend the fire like you have to tend the fire um, and, and this is like the wake up call for her this is also kind of the, the plot of Cormac McCarthy's The Road like like the, you, the That's fire a happy book. <laughs> <laughs> the, the fire, you're depressing the crap out of me the, the fire passes right and, and I wonder if we are in a like di- is this aren't our new people going to decide to enter public service? Is there going to be po- like sort of is, is can this create less partisan mayors and city councils? And, you know, are we it could it could. it could. I hope it could. Yeah, I hope it could. I know it could. Yeah. Whether it will or not, because you have to have somebody has to be laying some cornerstones and I don't see them. I think. I mean, when you look at, I mean, Louis C.K., I love the song, uh, Are All, All My Heroes Are On TV for the Wrong Reason? <laughs> I love yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, is, I mean, okay, disgusting, whatever. But does he ever get a chance to go, okay, that was wrong. I got yeah. it. I've learned. And welcome back. There is the cornerstone of forgiveness. Totally. Is gone. So if we don't have somebody relaying cornerstones, how does this new generation? Well, I, th- I think uh, who, who's the the congresswoman from from California? She ran after the twenty sixteen election. You know, she's the the bright young Democratic face of change, and and then she's like in a three way relationship with mm-hmm. a campaign manager, mm-hmm. and then you know is forced to resign, and then is like. Oh, I'm the victim here, right? Mm-hmm. It's like so. I, I think the the problem is even the people who are coming to save us, you know, save us, uh, are 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 horrendous hypocrites. Well, that's what happened to the Tea Party. Yeah, the Tea Party actually believed in a few things, and then they elected those people, and then they all turned into the same monsters, and they were like, right, well, that was a waste of time. Yes, yeah, and uh, I like. I don't know. I don't know. It's, uh, I think, I think what, what I try to do is zoom, zoom way out. I think one of the other, we were talking about this on your show. It's like, I think people consume way too much news. Like we are watching information in real time when we should be zooming out and turning to books and history and studying human nature and psychology and, you know, biographies. And so it's like, so I do that yeah. and I watch too much news and it doesn't make it better for me because <laughs> I keep closing the book going, okay, that didn't end well. Let's yeah. try this one. I mean, it did end well and that we're here. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, uh, well, it will end well in the end. I mean, yeah. life goes on. Men are meant to be free 
and uh, you know it might take us a couple of generations if it's lost it might be very very dark for a couple of generations yeah but we will you know you know the people the chinese people the the christians in china are actually praying for the united states to be brought down and i was talking to some of these people that have been rescued and i'm like what could right. you stop that yeah and and they we said need all the help we can get yeah they said if you're not humbled you will not remember who you are and you will not be able to help you have to remember who you are i i keep this uh, maybe you like this i'll give it to you i keep this coin in my pocket um and this is a a, a very ancient uh practice the the idea of memento mori uh the the sort of timeless elements of life and and that's a marcus quote on the back he says like you could leave life right now let that determine what you do and say and think and what he means is not like life is meaningless you're about to die like go, go to an orgy he means like this is the only moment you might have how are you going to behave in that moment who are you going to be what are you going to do mm. and i think our obsession with the breaking news of the moment has taken us away from like thinking about it like George Washington was performing for history you know and you might think that's bad but that's what called like in the short term like in up close you know Washington is like moving his slaves around so he can keep them enslaved while being in free territory right like he's a massive hypocrite mm -hmm. but on the larger scale he's thinking about what's the lesson i can teach you know people about power how can i set up institutions that outlast i think he was thinking about that bigger picture he wasn't thinking about his petty squabbles with thomas jefferson mm -hmm. you know and i think if, if people could get some perspective it would help give them some clarity and that for me the, i wrote the book it's like is this is this who i want to be like is this the legacy I want to live? If, if I die tomorrow, is this enough for me? And it wasn't. How did you get to where you are? How did you... I mean, you are a remarkably unique individual because you are, you're not only writing about it, but it's an, I can tell it's an honest search and you want to put it into practice every second, every time you put your hand in your pocket, yes. I've done it. Yeah. I've carried George Washington's compass with me on my hardest days. Okay. Incredible. Yeah. Um, because. Yeah. Hold on. You know who you want to be. Yeah. Hold on. Where did you come from? How did you get here? I, th I don't think it's that exceptional. I had like two ordinary parents. Uh, my mom was a school principal. My dad was a police officer. So was it a little bit of that? I think did, was, did the, did the the shock of being hit in the face of being like, you're my hero. And it's Hitler. Did that, was that it? What was I, it? That I mean, I think, I think it was a little bit from, from growing up. And then, and then it was, um, I read these books and it was like, oh, this is, this is what I wish people had been telling. Like, I, I think I just got hit. I got hit by this freight train of these books that this is like this timeless struggle that philosophy is not this series of abstractions and questions like you know how do we know we're not living in a computer simulation philosophy mm -hmm. is like 
kind of man do I want to be? What is the right thing? Like, how do you control it's your temper? difference between a f- applied philosophy and theoretical philosophy. Who oh, ca- totally. I don't care about theoretical yeah, philosophy. Yeah, like the greatest Stoic is Cato, who doesn't write anything down. He's a philosopher because when it counted, he did what he said he believed in. And Cicero, by the way, who wrote all sorts of things, was the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, Cicero wavered and Cicero contradicted himself. And, and, and Cicero, like Cato dies resisting Julius Caesar. Cicero, his friend, censors his eulogy of Cato because he doesn't want to get on the wrong side of Caesar. You know, like I, I just, I just, I'm just in love with those examples. I, to me, that's what transformed. You're in love with books. I am. And ideas. And where did that come from? My grandmother was a reading instructor. And so I think that's where it first came from. But I, it wasn't until much later in life that I read anything you might call good. So I grew up yeah, with just yeah. novels, right? And, and then... There's nothing wrong with that. No, it's, no. It's, I, the, it, it's the love of read. It's the idea. I remember I, I was 19. I'd only read stuff that I was forced to read. Yeah. 18 years old, I pick up The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. I read that book because I thought at the time, this is the only good book in the world. Yeah. You know, it just opened up so many different doors for me. And then I, you know, wised up and went, I bet there's something else. And then I started reading classics. Yeah. And I realized, well, there's a reason this book's been around for a couple of years. That's a really good story. But you have to have the love of reading and the appreciation of a book. Yeah, and it's, it's, I think, something that people don't realize that it compounds. So each classic you read gives you a whole new sense of history because that's what was influencing Correct. the people doing those things. So, yeah, it's, I think it's been, it's been deciding to dedicate myself to books. And the, the nice part about dedicating yourself to books is it eliminates the time. Like, I don't watch five hours of TV a day because yeah, I, yeah. I like reading books, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I... I get on an airplane and I've never bought Wi-Fi in my life on an airplane. I just read books and you, you watch people watching crappy movies mm-hmm. and you go, of course you think you don't have time to read. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think, I think, you know, Warren Buffett has said like the best investment he ever made was buying the intelligent investor by Benjamin Graham. I think we make a poor case for books to young people. We say like read books cause that's what smart people do or read books cause you'll get an F if you don't. We don't say like, this is, this will pay off for you. Like this will give you an, I like the decision. I, I asked Dr. Drew what books to read. I went back to my hotel room and bought them. Like I would not be sitting here if, you hadn't. if I hadn't done that. Mm-hmm. And so that ROI allows me to continue to invest in education. It's the same thing in many ways that I did when I was 30. I mean, I, I, uh, uh, people used to joke I had the library of a serial killer <laughs> because none of them agreed with each other. And yeah. I was looking for, hey, this guy says this. Who would this guy really get pissed off? Who would this guy say, don't read him as a contemporary? Yeah. And then I'd read him. And then I'd find, my father told me, when you find, if you could look at books and knowledge as a transparency, and when you see the same thing, it's the cardinal point. Yeah. When you see the same things, you know that's true. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it, it, it completely changes your mind. So give me, give me five books that you okay. should read. 
Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, the most powerful man in the world, writes a private notes to himself, not thinking anyone would read it. It's incredible. I think Robert Greene's The 48 Laws of Power is, a pri is, is essentially an introduction to all the classic texts of all time. Um, my favorite novel is this book, The Moviegoer by Walker Percy, which is all about sort of angst and deciding who you want to be and what you want to do in life. That's one of my favorite novels. Um, have you read Memoirs of Hadrian? It's, uh, I'm nerding out about the Stokes, but it's a, it's a, it's a novel that's, it's written as if as if Hadrian was writing the advice to Marcus Aurelius when he is going to become emperor. So I think that's an incredible one. And then how many is that? Is that three or four? I think it's four. Um, I what, what would be the fourth one? I, I really liked, it's influenced me a lot recently. I really liked David Brooks's new book, The Second Mountain. Um, about like you get to and this is sort of the journey we're talking you get to the top of your profession or your thing and you go wait this is it mm -hmm. and then you have to find a second more meaningful mountain or contribution to society and that second mountain is usually smaller it's usually smaller and much more personal yeah and much less recognized by other people correct correct one you wouldn't have seen if you weren't on the top of the mountain yes you could have yes you just had to realize that this big, huge mountain was kind of meaningless. Yes. That's sort of what I'm thinking about and going through now. I just read um, Frankenstein all, uh, over again. Oh. And the reason why I read it is because I was looking at the times that she was living in. Yeah. And the time she was living in was the beginning of electricity and everything else. And so she's... She's being influenced by uh, sticking electrical wires into animals. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. And they're dead, and all of a sudden they reanimate. Sure. And uh, I was just talking to, you know who Jason Blum is? Yes, the movie producer. So I was just talking to Jason. He, he, was, a, uh, he was a big fan of Ego's Anime, he told really? me. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So we were just talking, and I said, you've got to redo Frankenstein, but forget the old Frankenstein. Yeah. It's the same thing. We're now talking because of science. Maybe there is no death. Yeah. And what can we do with algorithms? What can we do in downloading people? What can we do by enhancing people? Nothing's changed. Yeah. The same exact warning, except they didn't have the technology. And we're coming to we're coming to the party this time like they did yeah. saying we do have the technology or we will. Right. What is the monster going to look like this time? Or will it be a monster? I will definitely. Uh, the, the other two novels, I think, fall in that category. Uh, have you read The Count of Monte Cristo? I love it. It's s such a huge book. Yeah. It's so much more than just about revenge. I think that one is a, a shockingly modern book. But because uh, we were talking about it earlier, I reread Fahrenheit 451 three too. or four years ago. I, I was, I was, what inspired me is, you know, he talks about the shell in people's ears. I thought, mm -hmm. isn't this just ear pods? And, and, mm -hmm. and, and I thought that's what I was going to get from it. And then I, re, I, I had read it in high school and my lesson, my, the lesson I took from it is like government censorship is bad. That's what it was a warning of. And actually the book is a warning against the way we censor each other. Like he says, like the government didn't want to burn books minorities and people wanted to burn books because they thought it was offensive to other people and other minorities that this was a this was a self-inflicted 
hellscape that we made. And then, Isn't it amazing how those all those writers in the 50s, the 30s to the 60s, they all got it pretty right. Shockingly right in, in, a, in a lot because I think great art and this is something I talk to writers all, all about is like great art is rooted in timelessness. So Star Wars is oh yeah is not about cutting edge sci-fi effects mm-hmm. the reason kids people are people who went to the premiere of star wars now take their grandkids to see mm-hmm. star wars is because it's about the hero's journey and and that's why odysseus is still relevant and gilgamesh is still relevant and, and i think the count of monte cristo and frankenstein if you lord of the rings totally hobbit yeah and and so but now i i would uh, i bet you could take the next year of novels on the new york times bestseller list and it's all nihilism and it's all gar it's all garbage and that it's it's about it's are you saying 50 shades of gray is almost 50 shades of gray i wish i'm talking more it's like these are novels that don't say anything they don't say anything they don't mean anything um they are not rooted in they are not the Great Gatsby is not a novel about the Jazz Age, you know. Like yeah. it just looks like Correct. one. So the the um, uh, there's a show on Apple TV Plus that um, I started watching, and I've only seen four episodes. So what do I know? But um, it's called The Morning Show. Oh yeah. And if it's not the Matt Lauer story, yeah. I don't know what is. Yeah. But uh, I was struck by it because. I don't think a network could have made this show because they have all that baggage. Yeah. But they're asking the really hard questions on that. Is there forgiveness? What about the people who knew about it and didn't say anything about it? They just accepted. Are they good? Are they bad? It's, it's, it's amazingly rich and deep, which you don't see anymore because... You're not supposed to be. You'll offend too many people. You're right. taking a side. When this, I haven't seen a side yet. I've seen both. And you're like, wow, that's a really good question. How come nobody else is ans- asking this question? I mean, and, and isn't that time, one of my favorite books, uh, James Rom wrote a book called Dying Every Day. And it's about, mm-hmm. the subtitle is like Seneca in the Court of Nero. And it's about how does the world's greatest philosopher become the advisor to the wor- worst emperor in Roman history? And on the surface, it seems obvious. It must be corruption. It must be a hypocrite. And then you're like, oh, how does James Mattis serve Donald Trump, right? Even though, like, not that Trump is Nero, but, like, to Mattis, he probably is. You know what I mean? These are exact opposite human beings. And you realize, oh, this is a timeless struggle, mm-hmm. you know? Um, how, how, what are our obligations to serve? What are our obligations to dissent, right? So then, like, well, how does our story end? I mean, you've you've studied it. You're looking at the characters as characters. You're looking at the people on stage right now as the characters that you've read. Yeah. How does our story end? Well, if this is a Shakespeare play, it, it ends with us all committing suicide and dying, unfortunately. Or, you know, this is setting the stage for a hero to emerge. And that's what I'd like to think is 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 in the works. Maybe it has to get worse before it gets better. But like... The one good thing about bad times is that they they call up the best in us as as much as the worst in us. And, you know, I don't think in, you know, 1859, we thought in Abraham Lincoln, like that was one, that was probably was the worst time. Anywhere, yeah. That was probably the worst time in American history. And you would not have expected some, 
you know, hillbilly lawyer from. What was he, the 56th vote at the brokered convention? Yeah. He was like, he didn't win until the very single, end. A single term congressman, mm-hmm. a guy who taught himself to read. I mean, Lincoln goes to Washington and the Civil War breaks out and he literally goes to the Library of Congress to read books about war because he was that inexperienced for what was just going to happen. And yet, you know, you, you, you go to the monument and you read the second inaugural address and you think, how did a human go from there to there in five years? It's trials. Un- unreal. But it's trials, but it's also what humans are capable of. Mm-hmm. And I think that would knowing what humans have been capable of and does in history makes you deeply depressed, but it also means you never count us out. Um, technology scare you, thrill you, a little of both. A little of both. I mean, one of the things I've started doing now, especially writing about stillness and thinking about it, is like, I don't touch my phone for the first one hour that I'm awake. I set the terms of the day. I do not, do not start the day reactive. And, and, and I, you know, that's when I do my, my reading. That's when I do my writing. I, like I start, that's when I do journaling. I'm, I'm, I think technology is great as long as you're using technology. Like it's fire. Yeah. As long as the technology is not using you, Mm -hmm. like one of the green one of the bright spots for me, I think podcasts and obviously people are listening to this as a podcast. Like that is the first encouraging media development that I've seen in the last five or six years. It's long form. It's antiviral. I bet half the people you have on this show, you vehemently disagree with Mm -hmm. and it is modeling. Like I, I love those sort of liberal, uh, condescension about the Joe Rogan podcast. Like what better thing could you design for young men specifically to be consuming than hours and hours of thoughtful discussions mm-hmm. with like a meathead and college professors mm-hmm. like this and, is, and a guy who's on the journey. Yeah. Yeah. Like again, that's always my thing with stoicism. People are like, Oh, this is ridiculous. What would you rather engineers in Silicon Valley be reading? Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like this is like or, or the thing that I, I love Jordan Peterson. I've gotten to meet him a couple of times. You know, it's like, uh, uh, he's, that's the dream, man. Like that, that's what, like, whether you agree with him or not, like w- who would you rather young people be listening to than a Harvard educated college professor who I, makes them love and great can, text? And can I tell you something? I sat in one of his shows. He came to, to town and I told him this afterwards because he was kind of musing on, I don't know why this is successful. And I'm sitting in the audience and I, I wanted to shout at him. I, I do. Um, I watched this audience and a lot of meatheads in the audience, a lot of people who have never thought about anything about what he's talking about. Right. But he was up there going, you're smart. You can figure it out. You have to apply yourself. You can make it. Yes. You know what I mean? He was saying things that were empowering to people that made them sit and listen and want to learn more, want to open up their minds. You know, I, I, I said to him, I said, I got to tell you, man, you lost me at least four times. Or I like my son looked yeah. at me and he said, what are you talking about? I'm like, I have no idea. OK, he's shaking the trees. Yeah. But he's empowering people because he's telling them the truth. 
you are not stuck yeah. where you think you are. What makes me so angry about Jordan Peterson is, can I curse on this podcast? Yes. That's the f-ing job, man. That's the <laughs> job of a college professor. The problem is not Jordan Peterson, if you agree with him or disagree with him politically. The problem is the tenure system is supposed to create... Every university should have 50 Jordan Petersons. Right. You know what I mean? Like, that's the, that's the entire profession. It was, Love the, books, encourage learning, you know, make people think, take provocative viewpoints, like, stand on principle. That's what college professors should be doing. What is, the, what is tenure all about if it isn't about saying things that make people uncomfortable? Yes. That's what you're supposed to be doing. That's the only way to learn. You know, uh, it's it's crazy. It, like the the problem is that there's not enough Jordan Petersons like that. Jordan Peterson is the only college professor, probably that your average white male like who's under 20 could name is a pro- like it's the same thing with Malcolm Gladwell. So if you don't want to be political, it's like uh, the problem is not Malcolm Gladwell popularizing academics. It's that academics are so boring that nobody wants to read them and that it's fallen on this journalist to bring their work to a mass audience. So I don't think a lot of academics, they've gotten there and then they've reached the mountain and then they're just there. Where the ones that are exciting, Joe Rogan, yeah, not an academic, but he's searching and he's excited about when he finds something. Yeah, Academics don't seem excited about anything anymore. I love Tyler Cowen, uh, just an amazing human being. Like that... That's that's the ideal of a college professor. Like I I love those guys, and I love those guys particularly as a college dropout who who didn't get that. You know what I mean? And uh, you think you'd be the same person if you had continued college? Yeah, I don't think. I mean, I don't think it would have changed me that much. But it did help make the distinction for me that that Twain quote about schooling versus education. It, It was like, oh, college is school, education can happen at school but it's better if it happens wherever you are Mm -hmm. so i think it might have changed me in some ways maybe i would have had a a better base of knowledge in other ways but i think in some ways maybe you're awfully you explore an awful lot so yeah i mean i think that's almost like me compensating for it so i think i think that it it was a net positive the problem with school is um i think school done right should open up doors yeah. You should leave there thinking, I'm a dummy. <laughs> I've learned all this stuff and there is so much out there. I'm a dummy. Instead, you walk out going, I'm the smartest man to ever live. Yeah. I think it's John Wheeler, the physicist. He invented the hydrogen bomb. He says, as your island of knowledge grows, so does the shoreline of ignorance. That's what they should print on your degree. Uh, but uh, it's not. Did you ever talk to him? John Wheeler? Yeah. No, I don't. No. Yeah. So I talked to him. Really? Years and years and years wow. ago. Wow. He was one of the more frightening people I've ever met. Why? Because he was so bummed. Oh, sorry. Not the hydrogen bomb. Okay. Sorry. I'm thinking okay. neutron bomb. Okay. Um, he was so bummed that the neutron bomb hadn't been used. He was like, this is the best. It doesn't blow up buildings. <laughs> it just kills people. And, uh, you know, and, and you're like, yeah, but they die a horrible horrible death over several hours he's like yeah but the army gives up immediately (laughs) i don't know how you feel about this i think this is why we have checks and balances in (laughs) our yeah good for you for inventing now yeah yeah um 
so tell me because we are not a society that is still no i i i knew when i was sober not not drinking yeah. when i was sober when i found myself turning off the radio in the car and driving and just thinking you know what i mean totally totally. and i I was like something's happened here i think i might be better yeah uh we don't do that it's constant interruption not not that we don't do that we have never done it like it is bad of course but like the two two pivotal things for me in the book were one there's a blaise pascal quote from 1500s from the 1500s all of humanity's problems stem from our inability to sit quietly in a room alone and then there's a scene in one of Seneca's letters where he is describing how hard it is to concentrate because it's so noisy outside of his window <laughs> in Rome. And you're like, no car horns, no jackhammers, mm-hmm. no trucks. You go, oh, it's always been hard to focus. It's, but it's, it's harder than ever. Yeah. I, I used to cut fields uh, on the tractor without anything uh, in my ears. Yeah. Now, and it was, they were glorious days. Now, trying to get my kid onto a tractor without something he's listening to is impossible. And you're like, trust me, you will thank me. (laughs) You will thank me over time. No, I I have this piece that's coming out. I went I went deer hunting with my uh, 17 year old neighbor a couple weeks ago. And, you know, we're up. It's like five in the morning. We're in my back pasture and there's no there's no cell reception. And I was like, do you understand how abnormal what we're doing is right now? This is. Mm And I, I think about that too. I love swimming. I love swimming more than ever because it's the only place that no screens and sounds are really possible. No, I now no, people I can do put, it. I, I can. It's so bad. <laughs> like, we can't help ourselves. I know. Uh, it's like, oh, how can I take my cell phone and check it while I'm swimming? Like people mm-hmm. are doing that. But but I think seeking out activities that that cultivate solitude. The first thing I do every morning is I wake up. Don't use my, I don't use my phone as an alarm clock and I take my son, we go for a walk and we walk outside, we watch the sun come up Mm. and that experience sets me up to be creative and clear headed and not jerked around and not, you know, it it sets up my whole day, but people, you know, people wake up and the TV they fell asleep watching is still on and then they go to the office where there's a TV running and then they're getting their you know their phone is telling them this and that and they go from meeting to meeting and then they wonder why they make bad decisions or they don't think big picture and you know they wonder why they can't we wonder why people can't see what's obviously happening whether it's with trump or anything it's because they're so up close to it they can't Mm -hmm. there's no room for reflection or perspective or or any of that i think it's why successful people are always the first by hours usually totally at work in the office all about the morning yeah when i was in the, when i was in new york at this great office one window looked at the empire state building the other one looked at the chrysler building and i would come in early before anybody and i'd watch the sunrise yeah. and i would i would sit there for a few minutes and i would just watch how the light was bouncing off of one of those buildings and it centers you and and so when people hear that word stillness, I think they think, oh, I got to go to a meditation retreat or I got to, you know, go to India or, you know, they, they, they think it, it's like you can go for a run. You know, you can you can read a book. You can watch the sun come up from your office. There are there are 
think about what an athlete does before they go on the court, right? Like there are ways to get stillness that are not sissy, that are not withdrawing from the world. There are ways to get stillness that make you better at what you do. And in fact, if you're not doing it, you're not going to be good at what you do. Mm -hmm. And to me, like one of the things that motivated the book was it was real. Like I was like, what are the best? I bet when you think of some of the best moments of your life, they are moments like, like I bet you think very fondly even now of those moments when you watched the sun come up, probably more than some of the biggest accomplishments in your life. And so it was like, if those are the special moments or those are the best moments, why am I content to just like let them happen randomly? Shouldn't I be cultivating? One of the reasons I live in, in Texas and I live out in the country a little bit is so I can build my life around those moments. Mm-hmm. It's funny you say this. I forgot that I did an event in Washington, D.C. about 10 years ago. 500,000 people there. What I think of when I think of that are two things. One, going down the night before where it's still pretty quiet and the sun was setting and I just talked to a few people. And then the next morning I got up and I sat with my children in the links, uh, the, the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and we watched the sunrise. I've done it's, that many times. Yeah. And it's not the screaming crowd. It's not sure. that moment of that. Right. It was those personal quiet moments. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I think that's what that monument is there for. It is. That monument's not there for you to take a bunch of photos at 2 p.m. as part of a tour group. I think it's there to catch the sun coming up and to see yourself reflected in that wading pool. And, you know, I was 18 years old and I was working in Washington. And um, this is when they would hose it down like once a week. I don't think they hosed it down since Reagan now. Um, But uh, I would go early, early in the morning before the sun was up. And uh, I would just sit on the steps and I would, you know, talk to the guy who was hosing it down when he was hosing it down or just nothing and just sit there. And it, it, uh, there's something, and I think it maybe part of my life was set, you know, the compass yeah. points may have been set at that moment. Cause it's, you're right. That is what that is for. Yeah. It's horrible when you go there and there's a whole bunch of people. Yeah. It's horrible. Course. Of course. It was mainly, at least me, I'm like, what are you doing? Shut up. Right. Shut up. Look, read that. Look at him. No, this should be accompanied by silence and reflection. And, and again, that's what the mornings and that's what the late evenings are, are so special for. And uh, we, we, we lose that because we try to cram crap in there. And what I love about podcasts is like, I don't know about you, but I don't have a lot of 90 minute conversations just for the hell of it with people with no device. Like, you know, you don't, it's almost like it's forcing us to do the thing that naturally this is the founders were watching TV. They were sitting around discussing. That's why they were in all these clubs. And that's why it's so great. I, I love having people. I really, I have respect for because I think they're honest, um, but they really disagree. We usually, you know, come into it thinking, this could turn into a bloodbath and it never does no. because we respect one another. And, right. and it's those, what I love about it is you're sitting with someone and you're like, I gotta write that down. Remind me of that. that. I've never thought of it that way. That's what we're missing. We're, yeah. we're only getting the thoughts that we agree with. Yes. Or the thoughts 
that fit in 140 or 280 characters and that make for a good YouTube video or a good headline. Uh, nobody likes it, but everyone's participating in it. I think that's the... Can you tell me from the book, one of the stories that really stuck out that I never heard before, um, the Michael Jordan story. Oh, yeah. I think this has all kinds of ramifications in our society today that we, could, we should learn. Well, so obviously Jordan, the greatest, the greatest basketball player of all time, incredible human being, incredible businessman, incredible entrepreneur, now an incredible philanthropist. I'm sure also generally a nice person, especially now I've heard. But I would urge everyone to go watch the Michael Jordan Hall of Fame acceptance speech because it's one of the darkest, saddest things you'll see. When I read about it, I, I had no idea and I would never have thought about that yeah. from Michael Jordan. He, he basically from an early age decided that the fuel for greatness was anger. It started, he believed that his father loved his brother more. And that was the first sort of spark. And he said, I'm going to prove my dad wrong. You know, and th- this is the saddest thing. I think about this now because I had a little bit of that growing up and, and uh, now have young kids. It's like, if you think you can earn mm-hmm. someone being proud of you, you've, you've already, it's, mm-hmm. it's, you've it's, already, already lost. it's already lost. And, but so he starts there. He gets, you know, cut from the high school basketball team. In fact, he just doesn't make varsity as a kid, as a, as a sophomore, because the other guy was eight inches taller. But instead, he accumulates slight after slight. And it's this anger, this rage that, that, that is at the core of what's motivating him as a player. This love of the game shit was, was not true, right? What motivated him was crushing his opponents. I mean, he punched Steve Kerr in the face when they were on the same team. You know, he, he wrecked people's careers, even at the, the saddest part. So he gets, he doesn't make, he doesn't make the, the high school team. And this fuels him to, to, you know, to prove everyone wrong. That, okay, that's enough. He, he's at, he's at, he gets accepted into the NBA Hall of Fame. And he invites that guy to the banquet so he can point him out in front of a national audience and say, coach, you picked the wrong person. I mean, just imagine how terribly sad that, sad that is. Like, and it's the opposite of Marshall. The opposite of Marshall. Mm-hmm. It's the opposite of, of uh, Gandhi uh, or, yeah. or Lincoln or, mm-hmm. or you know, it's, it's the opposite of the greatness that truly endures, you know. Um, and, and, but worse than that, it's just a miserable way to live. Like that should have been his shining moment instead. And, and someone I know, they said th- that's the moment when everything he'd crammed in the closet came exploding out all over him. And he saw, even he saw it afterwards and said, I don't, I don't like that person. And so anger is, anger is, we think anger is good fuel, but it is the most corrosive. It's like jet fuel. It'll, blow up all over you and and the worst part is it even if it makes you great doesn't give you the one thing you want which Mm -hmm. is feeling feeling good about yourself Mm -hmm. aren't we kind of training our society to be like him yeah to me this is the the real danger that trump represents that that uh that that's what we now think success or power looks like it's pettiness and 
funny because I, I agree with you on that, but that's not what I thought of. I thought of all of the, you know, Greta Thunberg. You, how dare you? You stole my childhood. All of this anger and angst that I've been slighted by someone else, even people who lived a hundred years ago. Yeah. It's craziness. No, that, that is, that is, that is true. We have now conflated anger and political change when really the great political movements were typically motivated by love or idealism, even if they are about a grave injustice. Um, you know, you compare Martin Luther King and Colin Kaepernick, like, Martin Luther King is saying, this is what we believe. Let us, you know, let, let, let me, let me shine this at you to inspire you. And Kaepernick is basically, and I actually Malcolm admire, X. I admire the courage that it takes to put your ass on the line. What I don't respect is the, what I don't think is strategically valuable is the, is the hopelessness of it. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And like the way I think about it is like, look, most people who are doing wrong in the world are not doing it on purpose. Mm -hmm. And so if you yell at them, you don't change their mind. And then there are really awful people in the world. Mm -hmm. Like you, you don't defeat the Stephen Millers of the world by yelling at them. You, you, don't, you don't defeat the Hitlers of the world by being angry at them. Not to compare those two, I know that's extreme, but, but like there are people who, are, who have hold malevolent beliefs and who are, who are ex attempting to exact an agenda that I think runs counter to the principles that the world should operate by. You do not beat those people by being emotional. You beat those people by being strategic and by being hopeful and by being collaborative and listening. Yes. And not having, we, we are not, we're not a, a society that uh, is, is humble enough to release certitude. We, we have to be so, stop being so certain. The one thing I'm certain about is certitude will kill us. Moral certitude is okay if you actually are right. Moral no, no. certitude yeah, is yeah. the worst. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certitude on mathematics. Yes, right. Sure. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not getting into yeah. a rocket if you're not certain <laughs> right. you did the math right. Um, yeah, moral certitude. I am right about this when it's not. You know, I appreciate the fact that you're an agnostic and. You know, I've, I've had several atheists on and they'll ask me if I could prove it. If you could prove that God didn't exist, I'd be a moron. OK, I'd be a moron. Sure. And and if I could prove to you that God did exist, you'd be a moron. Right. If we're honestly looking, I don't know. I really don't know. It's not provable. Yeah. OK. And the moral certitude is what is killing us. Because we're dummies. We have no, it's not like we're the scientists that were, you know, uh, working on the Manhattan Project and going, no, I'm pretty, that's right. No, I'm right on that. We're not that. We're uneducated boobs that are just emotional going, it's your side. When, and how quickly moral certitude seems to descend into total moral hypocrisy, right? Like the guy prosecuting Harvey Weinstein is like into kinky violent sex you know like it's like uh the the media that attacks uh kavanaugh you know what like uh, is right. is colleagues with matt lauer like it's it's so complicated mm. right and and but it's not it's yes. only complicated because we 
we want to win. That was the one thing about Donald Trump that I bothered. You're going to be sick of winning. I'm already sick of winning. Okay. I just want to do the right thing. Well, that's the Jordan thing. Like, you know, people laughed at that. And it's like, if sometimes you look at some of those winners and you realize they are sick of winning because it sucks. Mm -hmm. You know, like, like when you look at Jordan at that Hall of Fame speech, you're not like, I want to be that guy. I talk to people. It's like, you have to live in Donald Trump's head. What's that like? You know, like that's what, you know, I don't want to be uh, alone in the White House. My wife not wanting to be in the same room with me. My only friend is Sean Hannity. And I, you know, we text each other at 3 a.m. That's not healthy. You know, like that's not healthy. Uh, and so that there are a lot of people who are tired of winning, you know, like there are a lot of rich, like you don't want to end up like the end of there will be blood. You know, uh, and, and that's where it goes, I think, a lot of times. And uh, yeah, yeah, we, we ti tired of winning is a real thing. Because we've mislabeled winning. Yes, and that's why I like the second mountain so much. Oh, winning is uh, not how much you accumulate. And I, the Stokes talk about this so much, too. It's not what you accumulate, it's what you do. I love the, the Jackie Robinson thing on his tombstone, like a life is important insofar as its impact on other lives my um one of my heroes is dietrich bonhoeffer he was executed most people say he didn't win he did yeah the guy who helped um oh and then 36 olympics uh jesse owens the the german yeah that helped him on the high jump he won i mean he was sent to the front for that yeah but he won mm-hmm it's 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 um a miracle is a change of perspective. That's all it is. Yes. And, and, and to circle back to where we were, we need to hold up those, where's that guy, where's that German guy's statue? Do you know what I mean? Where's, where's the... Because you can't be a society without statues. Yeah, right. Where, and no one is perfect. Yeah, like, look, okay, you give Robert Lee a statue, sure, but where's the statue of the Southern guy who left everything behind to go fight for the union. Like, where's that guy? Like, there's lots of those statues. I I'm more interested in the people who are not traitors, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, like that, that was a bigger sacrifice. Right. Uh, and, and, and we can tell, we can tell those stories um, and we can build monuments to those people. And, and if, if we're not going to build monuments to them, you can have monuments in your house about them and, and uh yeah where where are the frederick Douglass statues like and uh here's the booker t statue oh incredible human being um th there are so many fascinating people like that that we don't we give short short shrift to thank you for the conversation this was so cool thank you it was, it was an honor. really great yeah we'll have you back thank you Just a reminder, I'd love you to rate and subscribe to the podcast and pass this on to a friend so it can be discovered by other people. 